I go to Cooperstown for the 19th Century Baseball Conference that I presented at last year, actually. And I, I took a couple of the guys aside. Uh, David Nemec, who's a great researcher, has written a number of books. And I said, David, I keep running into this thing uh, while I'm researching Detroit about all these players from Detroit are coming down with malaria. Uh, do you have any idea what that what that's all about? And he says, no, I didn't really run into that very much. So then a little bit later, John Thorne, who is the uh, Major League Baseball historian and who's written extensively, and he's like, uh, oh, man, he's like Moses for baseball. He's awesome. And I said to him, I said, John, I keep running into this thing and these players that are coming down with malaria. I had barely got the word malaria out of my mouth, and he says, it's the clap. Baseball players were very popular with the ladies, and they would travel extensively, and they would come down with social diseases, it turns out. And this was one of the things that the managers of the day had to deal with when their players were indisposed. I still don't know, however, how going to a spa... Uh, and baths for a couple of weeks would cure you of a sexually transmitted disease, but apparently that's what they were doing. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, what's new? How's it going? My name's Tim, Tim Hanlon that is. And uh, you've uh, come across my little podcast. It's called Good Seats Still Available. And uh, it is, of course, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And uh, I uh, thank you so much for finding us and uh, downloading us and giving us a listen. And uh, if you've uh, come back from a previous listen, I especially and doubly and super duper appreciate it uh, as well. Uh, today, we are uh, honoring the fact that uh, pitchers and catchers have been uh, spotted in uh, their respective training camps in Florida and Arizona. And uh, it's a good opportunity, a good excuse to start thinking about baseball once again. And baseball uh, has a rich and uh, varied history. Uh, sometimes we're going to go back to things that are a little bit more recent, but uh, we're also going to go back to things that, uh, that frankly, uh, are not so recent and are a bit more historical in presence. But again, as with everything that we discuss here on this little show, uh, it all adds up to uh, to rich uh, and interesting stories, and a lot of which uh, today's sort of modern sports successes are built upon. And today we are uh, joined by our guest, Chip Martin, who has a really cool little book uh, about a team that basically was the first uh, professional baseball club to play in the city of Detroit. Most people think that the uh, the Tigers were the sort of originators of pro baseball uh, in the Motor City. And of course, that is not true, as our guest Chip Martin will tell us. Uh, and the team, of course, or maybe not uh, known to most, uh, was called the Detroit Wolverines. And uh, in 1881, uh, May 2nd of 1881, for that matter, uh, the first ever Major League Baseball game in Detroit was played. Uh, and it was these uh, Detroit Wolverines playing the team from Buffalo. And there's a plaque uh, still there where the old recreation park used to stand. And um, it's a very interesting conversation and story. It's, it, you're going to find some very uh, fun and uh, somewhat ribald uh, stories in the uh, telling of the Wolverines' history. You have uh, some very interesting characters, for sure. And, and certainly, as we've talked about with our friend uh, Bill Reisick uh, on the uh, the predecessor to the National League, uh, the National Association, roguishness was uh, certainly uh, very common uh, at that time. Uh, baseball players... Uh, Certainly uh, enjoyed their their lifestyle, shall we say? And we'll hear a few more interesting anecdotes as to what we mean by that, uh, especially when it comes to this Detroit team. Uh, nicknames, uh, crazy nicknames of, of all kinds. Uh, some of them not necessarily the most flattering, 
Uh, and yes, for you pretzels get sign fans out there, uh, we will be talking about the uh, the legendary curveball thrower uh, that was on the Detroit Wolverines and probably had the best name on the team, nickname wise. That being pretzels get sign. An interesting story there, among many others, uh, with our guest uh, Chip Martin and a discussion about the Detroit Wolverines of the National League of the uh, late 1800s coming up in just a couple of seconds. Uh, let us see. We are again sponsored by uh, our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And again, you've got to go to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. That is the place to find all of your treasure troves of sports memorabilia, whether that be uh, buttons or pennants and uh, programs and media guides and uh, baseball and other trading cards. And it's all it's it's a rich uh, it's a rich tapestry of stuff that we're going to lose a lot of time and a lot of minutes uh, on the site just gazing. But hopefully you'll also be convinced that uh, some of those uh, items that you'll find on SportsHistoryCollectibles.com will be worth owning for yourself. And should you make that determination, of course, we want to help. And of course, by uh, using the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout, uh, we will help by giving you 15% off your purchases. Uh, so uh, no better excuse to give the site and uh, a couple of shekels to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Use that promo code GOODSEATS. Save yourself 15% off uh, of your purchases, and you'll enjoy the experience uh, as well. And um, we love uh, the idea of SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, we love our friend D Dean Mitchell for uh, introducing us to it, and uh, what a kindred soul he and that site is to whatever ridiculousness that we're pursuing here on this little podcast. Uh, and uh, we uh, encourage you to uh, visit early and visit often. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Don't forget that promo code, Good Seats, at checkout. And of course, we also want to remind you about Audible, our friends in the world of audiobooks. And there's so many cool things, so many great stories to be heard and listened to. Uh, sometimes you just don't feel like reading. Uh, you're biking or you're doing some other kind of activity and you're uh, your eyes are uh, busy doing something uh, other than paying attention, but uh, your ears are open and, and, and receptive to uh, listening to a good story. And why not try Audible uh, for yourself? Get your free audiobook download and a free month of the Audible audiobook service. And the best way, of course, to do that is by going to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and giving yourself and itself or whatever, you know, a try. Please do. As you know, we got a couple of shekels for uh, you giving it a try, and uh, we certainly love to help keep this podcast uh, growing. And uh, we could always uh, use a little bit of a financial love once in a while to sort of uh, keep things on the up and up. AudibleTrial.com slash GoodSeats. Again, a free audiobook to enjoy, a free one-month subscription to the service, and uh, important fact, you can cancel at any time. Uh, it's really a no-risk proposition. And as we've said many times before, the library is vast. It's 180,000 and counting titles to choose from, and you will absolutely find something, I guarantee you, that will be of interest to uh, to burn your free uh, download audiobook credit. AudibleTrial.com slash GoodSeats. Thank you for trying that out. Thank you, Audible, for being a sponsor, and um, we appreciate it. All right, so uh, let us get into uh, the sport uh, of baseball circa the late 1880s or so. And we're going to go to the uh, Motor City. It wasn't the Motor City at that time just yet. Uh, but uh, the team is called the Detroit Wolverines and a very uh, crazy cast of characters uh, and some interesting stories about that team with our guest, Chip Martin. Please enjoy. 
Well, I'm a retired newspaper reporter, uh, so I know how to write a bit. Uh, after 41 years, I think I got the hang of it. I've been a long-time baseball fan. I uh, played for, uh, actually, fastball. Uh, I played for my uh, soft pitch for my, my town when I was growing up. And in Canada, where I live, in on- London, Ontario, uh, we are a lot of early baseball was played up here. In fact, here in London, we have the world's oldest baseball park, Labatt Park, and the first recorded game of baseball occurred in uh, about 40 minutes away from my home here in a little place called Beachville, and that was in 1838. So with all that and being a baseball fan, um, I like hockey, but I really like baseball. And uh, um, I saw Ken Burns' documentary back in the early 1990s about baseball. And I have to be honest, I was a little offended when toward the end of his series he said, and now baseball is truly international that the Blue Jays have won the World Series. We've been playing baseball um, since the earliest of days here. Small towns in Ontario, and uh, this part of the world anyway, um, may not have enough money or may not be big enough to have a, a hockey arena, but uh, there's ball diamonds everywhere. And baseball has been a part of our fabric, of our culture, uh, almost as long as yours. And uh, I, I got motivated when I heard Ken Burns talking about that, and I said, well, that's not right. I know we've been playing baseball here a long time. So I wrote my first baseball book called um, Baseball's Creation Myth, which reminded people that the story about baseball being invented in Cooperstown is a myth, and I suggested for the first time that perhaps the story was borrowed and uh, adapted from the story of uh, the first recorded game in Beachville in Ontario, which would be interesting because the idea of having baseball invented in Cooperstown was to prove that it was purely an American invention. Well, the reality is it wasn't invented at all, and it sort of evolved over the years, and it evolved in different places in different ways. And we were sort of in on the ground floor. So I wrote that book. And then I, I said, well, you know, I should do something about the London Tecumseys of the 1870s. They were the, one of the founding teams of the International Association, which was founded as a rival league for the National League. And um, I wrote about the, the Tecumseys. They built the park in, in London here in 1877, still used for baseball. They became champions of the International Association. They had one of the first curveball pitchers of the day, Fred Goldsmith, um, and some pretty good uh, other staff, uh, other players on the roster. They won the International Association by defeating the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, which were um, a really good team. But they had a, um, a, and in the course of research there, I learned about the Pittsburgh pitcher named Pud Galvin, who a book had never been written about. So I wrote a book about the Tecumseys, and then that sort of spawned the book about Pud Galvin, who was the fifth winningest pitcher of all time. He was the first to 300 games. He also dabbled with performance-enhancing drugs back in the 1880s, late in his career, with amazing results. Um, and I wrote that book, and while I'm researching the Galvin book, I discovered that he, he played in Buffalo, and in Buffalo there was a very interesting transaction whereby the the team from Detroit, which wasn't doing very well, came over and bought the big four players just after Galvin had left, and they were the big hitters of the day, Dan Bruthers, Deacon White, Hardy Richardson, and Jack Rowe. And uh, they bought them over to uh, Detroit. They, they opened their wallets, sort of like they had a guy like Steinbrenner over there named Stearns, opened his wallets, and they bought themselves a championship at the National League in 1877. And in an early version of the World Series, they defeated St. Louis, and they were on the top of the heap. The very next year, after a disappointing season and not very good fan support, they sold the team off to Cleveland, and that was the end of Detroit in the National League. Anyway, so that's that book. And so everyone sort of uh, morphed into another one or led to another. There's sort of a, a linking that went on.
in my baseball research. That's how that happened. Sorry about the long answer. No, that's great. That's interesting. And um, uh, so that's uh, the uh, in that uh, journey, right? So the discovery, frankly, of I guess perhaps unwittingly, sort of uh, the uh, the true uh, birth of baseball in Detroit, which I'm sure uh, many generations since have uh, uh, perhaps in a, in a uh, uh, an apocryphal way have, have probably thought it only started it ended with the Tigers, right? So. Um, Maybe we can uh, dial it back into sort of uh, sort of the origins of this team, the Wolverines. Uh, and I guess, frankly, it's probably also a, a parallel to that of the National League itself, which was relatively new uh, at the mm-hmm. time of the Wolverines existence. So maybe uh, maybe we could start there with sort of how you kind of began the journey and uh, made the uh, along with the team uh, as well in its journey. Well, there's been some very good material written about early baseball in Michigan and in the Detroit area by Peter Morris, so that was one of my starting points. But it was very interesting that when cities like Chicago and Boston and uh, uh, the teams that were in the National Association, which predated the National League, when baseball was really thriving there. Detroit, there was a major debate. It was, Believe it or not, it was almost a Victorian mentality there, that they didn't think it was appropriate that anyone would should be paid to play baseball. And they had some early teams there, the Etnas, the Cass, and the Hunky Dory Club, and um, the early risers, and a number of them. And the, the, the head of these teams had to say, oh, we're sorry, we've offended people. We'll, we'll go back to playing amateur. Uh, it wasn't always that way. They, they sometimes hid the fact that they were playing people. So professional baseball was rather late getting into Detroit. In 1879, um, a fellow from Cleveland, Cleveland had a team in the National League, was coming to Detroit area looking for players. And while he was in the area, his partner back in Cleveland cut him loose. This is a fellow named Hollinger. In 1879, Bill Hollinger was recruiting players. He was cut loose by his partner. So he said, well, I'm in Detroit. Detroit doesn't have a team. It's a good-sized city. Let's see if we can get a team going here. Well, he bumped into a bunch of capitalists in, uh, in Detroit that were just creating something called Recreation Park, which was a horse racing venue, but also had skating rink and gymnasium and other sporting things. And the people behind what was called Recreation Park thought, gee, you know, a ball team would be a perfect addition to this. So they encouraged Hollinger. Hollinger played his games in brand new Recreation Park, which was considered one of the most beautiful ballparks in all of North America. I think it was Harry Wright or George Wright remarked on that when they were in with Boston. It's a beautiful park, and uh, uh, but the problem was uh, they were not a league team. Um, they were an independent team, and they had to rely on arranging games with professional teams, many of whom were in their own leagues. They had to play barnstorming operations, and they they went all around in uh, in, in Michigan looking for games. Bottom line is, uh, it was a professional team. They didn't have enough revenue coming in, and they disbanded. I think it was by August of 1879. And so professional baseball was didn't even last a full season the, the very first time. A couple of years later, a new, new mayor in Detroit, a guy named William Thompson, he said, you know, he was well-connected with some of the rich families in the, in the Recreation Park and in Detroit. He says, you know, we should get a baseball team here. You know, we're big enough, and I'm going to, apply for it. He applied for it on letterhead of the mayor's office of the city of Detroit, and he had a little help from um, Spalding over in Chicago and encouragement there as well. Anyway, he applied for membership in the in the league on letterhead of the mayor's office and, and was permitted a team in Detroit. Uh, it began in 1881. 
Well, the mayor ran it out of his office. Um, in fact, if you look in the Spalding Guides, they say what's the address of the team. Well, it's the mayor's office, city of Detroit. And the mayor was in office for three or four years. And finally, he got a little fed up. He he felt that the ball players were dishonest, that you sign a contract with them, they wouldn't keep their word, they'd play people play um, one team off another to improve their pay packet. They were carousers, drinkers, womanizers. He just got tired of dealing with them. So eventually a fellow who was a, a guy named Fred Stearns, Frederick Stearns, who was the head of a big pharmaceutical company in Detroit, he said, I'm going to get into, involved in this. We need a winner in Detroit. He'd played back at University of Michigan in the 1870s and uh, loved baseball and said, we're going to bring a winning team to this city. Well, Fred Stearns uh, opened his wallet, and even though the National League was clamping down on player salaries, he had all these personal service contracts with players in order to pay them above the going rate. Um, and at one point, and this is, this is one of the fa- most fascinating things about the whole story of the Detroit Wolverines, uh, Indianapolis came to Detroit trying to buy the team because it wasn't doing very well by 1884. They were, I think, last or just about last in the league. And Indianapolis was in the Western League, and that league was a little shaky, and the team had some money. And the guy who was the manager of it was a Canadian lad named Bill Watkins, came to Detroit, tried to buy the team. Well, the team didn't want to sell, and in fact, they bought Watkins, and they bought the Indianapolis franchise. First time a franchise had been bought in National League history, which caused a little consternation. Back then, before you, when you left one team, before you signed with another, there was like a 10-day grace period that... You know, so other people could find you and maybe track you down and maybe sign you to a contract. Well, the Wolverines and Mr. Stearns and the manager said, "Well, we got to do something here. If we don't, you know, do something, we're going to lose all these players. We just bought the franchise." So they sent them on a cruise, ten days on a body of water, and depending on who you listen to, it was either uh, Lake Michigan, Lake uh, Lake St. Clair, although it's a little small, Lake Erie, or Lake Ontario. And for 10 days, the players were basically kidnapped. They were put on the ship, was not allowed to go within sight of land. They were given all the great food and drink, and they were even given uh, cards to play uh, and chips to play poker with. They were treated like royalty. At the end of the 10 days, the players were all brought back to Detroit by the captain, and there waiting at the dock was the manager, and he signed them all to contracts. Well, uh, that's kind of uh, a shocking thing to think that, you know, Kidnapping to get your players was a was something that you could do. Today, if you tried that, uh, Tim, you'd be uh, up on charges. You know, he'd be in jail. And then they did the same thing a little later when they got the big four players. Even though the big four players sort of they didn't they wanted to play for Detroit. They were paid good money when they were they were lured over here because Detroit bought another franchise. They bought uh, Buffalo. And then this time, the big four players they were being chased by everyone else in the National League. They, in fact, went up to a hunting lodge on Lake St. Clair that was owned by one of the directors of the Detroit Club, and they hid out for 10 or 12 days and in order to stay away from uh, uh, other teams that were trying to track them down. Ultimately, uh, the National League said, yeah, okay, you can have them. So by hook or by crook, this guy Stearns, who was sort of like a, an old-time George Steinbrenner who wanted to do anything to win, uh, basically got his way, got his players, and bought himself a championship. Well, so this is interesting, right? Because uh, this, um, and we we did uh, t- talk about it a, a little bit of this with um, uh, with our previous guest in episode thirty three, Bill Rizek, 
who wrote the uh, the book uh, Black Guards and Red Stockings, which is yes, actually, it's a it's a he's a great guy, and that's a terrific book, and was yeah. one of my research uh, books. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know the idea of the National Association, which obviously preceded the uh, the National League, but but we did sort of get into some of the uh, beginnings or the ra- the ramblings of uh, or the rumblings, I should say, of. Um, I guess this sort of uh, somewhat uh, inelegant and incongruent uh, evolution from uh, more of an amateur uh, pursuit into something approaching what I guess we would, you know, in retrospect, look as as the professionalization uh, of the game, right? And and it feels to me like some of these stories that you're talking about are some kind of rough, uh, uh, inelegant ways, I guess, of, of how maybe some of those uh, moves towards <laughs> professionalism, quote unquote. Uh, yeah, it was a learning. It was a learning. It was a learning curve for everyone, I think, uh, Tim. Right, and 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 I guess too. I guess the, the maybe it's also helpful. And we'll get into Stearns and, and and some other things in a second, but um, maybe it's also helpful maybe to put this in context because um, it, I I get the sense right, and I'm not an historian. I'm not a saber member. I just play one on television, right? But uh, the <laughs> the idea uh, of professionalism wasn't necessarily looked upon as either a a wanted thing by a certain segment of the baseball populace nor per se a positive development in certain circles is that correct well oh absolutely and some families were so opposed to their uh, kids uh, their young men going in to play professional baseball an awful lot of them uh, took alias you know took 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 names of, of somebody else in order to play the game because the families were so embarrassed that their uh, young men that should be uh, you know I mean in the case of Fred Goldsmith that pitched here in in uh, London his father wanted him to go in the printing business now he didn't change his name and eventually the father after you know being estranged from him for a number of years by the time Fred played in uh, Chicago in the 18 early 1880s they finally brought his dad up from New Haven Connecticut introduced him on the field and he finally accepted the fact that his son did pretty well in playing baseball and it was a, a, a decent living there were a number of players that if you go back and, and do the research um, they just they, the, the parents the family was just so opposed to them getting involved in baseball it was considered um, a very uh, low-level occupation it was too much money for just playing games and uh, baseball players also were great drinkers, party animals, skirt chasers, and the like. And, uh, you know, it was not a, exactly a, a glamorous uh, occupation back then. Yes, they were paid more than the average working man uh, in a number of cases. You know, um, a player might be paid $2,000 a year back in the 1870s, 1880s, where the average working man might be making $300 a year. So it was uh, maybe 10 times, uh, maybe as much as 10 times more than the average worker would be earning, but it wasn't considered uh, um, a very good calling by many, many people. So that, that okay, so that's interesting to you because it basically I think, in, in other words, we're kind of dancing around this idea really of the beginnings of a business model around this sport. And Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and you know, the National League, the National League, struggled to make money from baseball for the first number of years. They they didn't get it right. The American Association came up in 1882, and from day one, the American Association made money. Teams like Cincinnati, um, they, they, they made money because they allowed play on Sundays, and they allowed the sale of alcohol, beer and alcohol, in their parks. The National League owners, it was a very small group of men, capitalists, six or eight, depending on which year and how many teams were in, but 
they just decreed that they didn't want women, they didn't want alcohol or playing on Sundays in the ballpark. They wanted women to come out. They wanted it to be a family thing. They didn't want to have degenerates and beer drinking and rowdyism and all that sort of stuff. Consequently, um, without Sunday play back then, you know, people worked six days a week, 10 hours or 12 hours a day. The only day of rest they had was Sunday. They'd go to church and then they'd look for something to do. The American Association realized, and in many of their cities, there are a lot of German-speaking people who like to have a beer with their recreation, and those were very profitable cities. The National League struggled and struggled and struggled for years to make in, get any sort of profitability. That's why at the time of Detroit, and Detroit got on the wrong side of the National League, that's why at the time of Detroit they were putting a cap on salaries in order to make the business model work so that they'd have some money at the end of the day. And Detroit didn't play by that game, and because Detroit didn't play by that game, the National League penalized them and changed the the gate splitting arrangements so that um, uh, they didn't make. Detroit drew well on the road. Actually, they drew better on the road than they did at home. And so, by changing the gate sharing from a, a third of the revenue at a at a park, they give $150, and that was that really was one of the reasons that led to the demise of Detroit. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, right? So before we sort of get into a little bit more specifically into into the Wolverines, um, maybe the uh, a little bit of a, t- a tiny bit of the background as to what made Detroit different by uh, comparison to the rest, because it seems to me that uh, as the sort of uh, uh, shall we say civically oriented community venture, I guess of of uh, of baseball teams became more of a uh, a business model and a businessman oriented. Uh, endeavor, yeah. um, you you had a number of uh, approaches to not only revenue, as you mentioned with the American Association, but also uh, in terms of keeping costs down. Um, and I think that to me, one of the interesting uh, 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 things that sort of came out of my research about this is that uh, the seeds of what we certainly saw in many, many decades down the road uh, in labor strife with this idea of a reserve system Right, seems mm-hmm. to be almost like a tenant, a major tenant of uh, of this business model to keep costs in line, to keep talent uh, within the fold, and to maybe restrict or restrain uh, unbridled, uh, uh, shall we say, rating of talent uh, from the earliest days back in the early, you know, eighteen nineties, right? Oh yeah, even or even earlier than that. I mean, the the reserve clause came in in the eighteen eighty eighteen seventy nine eighteen eighty somewhere in there. Um, but you know, the National League was the first one to try to make the business, make it a business run by capitalists. The National Association and even the International Association, they had a, a lot of clubs that were cooperatives. Basically, they were community ventures. Um, you know, you split the proceeds at the end of the day and hoped you made some money, uh, including the players. So uh, it was something that was good for community spirit. I mean, a lot of competition, putting towns on the map, that sort of thing. And the National League was the first one that was trying to, uh, that was run by capitalists that were trying to make money at the end of the day, make it a business because they realized that people liked baseball. Baseball was a, uh, a craze that was sort of sweeping uh, post-Civil War, and um, they, they felt that there's an opportunity here for us to make money. Well, they tried an awful lot of things. They tried the, the reserve list. Uh, they tried the uh, cap on salaries. Um, and, you know, the uh, the, the, the reserve list especially was one that really stuck in the craw of players. Yes, it was nice to know you'd have a job next year because you were being reserved, but it did mean you couldn't shop around your talents, okay, after your contract was over. 
and there were all sorts of things in there that, you know, if you didn't play, you didn't get paid. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd be left on tenterhooks there not knowing if you were actually going to get a contract for the next, next year, but you were on a team's reserve list so no one could talk to you. Um, and it was, it was tough being an employee back then. Um, you know, there, there was some glamour and that sort of stuff, and the pay wasn't too bad. Uh, but it was, I think um, it was Deacon White that said, uh, you know, he didn't like the fact that uh, uh, these owners felt that they owned my carcass and that uh, it's, they likened it, some of the players likened it to slavery. And because of that hatred for the reserve clause and a lot of the practices, the, the, the limit on salaries, the brush classification system that limited salaries, um, that's what led to the, the uh, Players' Revolt in um, 1890 that created the Players' League. It only lasted for one year, but um, it was a, a, a manifestation of the, the, the players feeling, well, we're being treated like slaves, we're going to start our own league. Yeah, now to me that's extraordinarily interesting because I think, uh, you know, as you look at sort of the modern-day game, uh, you think, uh, you know, you look back at some of the, the sort of more recent modern-day uh, player strikes that this is sort of a a relatively new phenomenon. It absolutely isn't. It's actually was uh, ingrained and and uh, oh, yeah. part of the original sort of business inklings of how uh, how baseball was growing up back in the uh, 1870s, 1880s, right? Absolutely. No, there was a lot of uh, dissatisfaction among the players and even among the owners. Uh, I mean, that's where Detroit got on the short end of the stick. All the other owners got, got uh, teed off at uh, Detroit for paying players large amounts of money, larger than uh, the, the cap said that they should pay, and getting away with it by doing these personal service contracts so that uh, they were paid directly by, uh, by the owner. Um, under the table, in effect, and uh, they were able to buy the best players out there and win the championships. Well, all right, so let's talk about Detroit then. I mean, um, uh, we mentioned uh, Frederick Stearns, right, uh, who uh, really was the owner at the, in the latter part of the Wolverines' uh, what is it, eight-year uh, yeah. existence, right? But uh, it, I, I guess it, it'd be really – it's my understanding that, that the Wolverines, uh, you know, in many respects treated their players perhaps a little bit better uh, they did. Some of the other teams did. in the league, right? And yep. I don't understand why that's a bad thing, per se. That seems like sour grapes from some of the competitors, or was it more than that? Well, they were played, they were treated fairly well and paid fairly well. Uh, yes, there, were the, there was a player or two uh, that, you know, were agitators among the Wolverines that went on to get involved in the, in the Players League. But for the most part, uh, it was a, a relatively um, benign uh, uh, ownership there in terms of, of paying the players. There's a guy down in, in uh, owner in uh, Boston named Soden, who was absolutely hated by his players. He was as tight as they come. He wouldn't spend a nickel if he could avoid it. And he was one of the guys who was among the leaders of the, the group that said, we have to take Detroit in hand. We have to teach them a lesson. We're going to change the way we split the gate proceeds so they're not going to profit off us when they come to town. Because Detroit was a pretty good draw. Uh, they had some really good players. They had a a catcher named Charlie Bennett, who should be in the Hall of Fame, um, who was with them the entire time. Uh, Ned Hanlon, terrific outfielder and base dealer, um, shares the same last name as you, um, and was a terrific player. They had a number of very good players who were quite happy playing in Detroit and were fairly well paid. Um, uh, the other teams uh, didn't really care for the way that Detroit was running its model because it was making it hard for them um, hard for them to make money in their cities. And Detroit wasn't one of the largest cities that was in the uh, in the league. It was 
the time the Wolverines, the population was like 150,000. Uh, yes, it was bigger than places like Worcester and some of those, those Providence and some of the other places, but it sure was nowhere near uh, New York or Boston or, or Chicago. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening. and. Back to our conversation. Yeah, so I, I guess it's really important to put a, a, a push pin into this part of it, right? Because uh, the history of Detroit, right, I think everybody sort of looks at it as, you know, as uh, tied intrinsically to uh, the uh, the rise of the automobile in the, uh, uh, the early 1900s and and. And then some, but you know, back then, you know, prior to the uh, turn of the turn of the century, uh, this uh, city was indeed larger than sort of most hamlets in the U.S., right? But not necessarily. And you mentioned mm-hmm. before they were a little late. Detroit was. Yeah, uh, it was. It, it, it was. Yeah. It, it, Detroit was a Detroit was a uh, a very different city than we see today. It was uh, smaller. 
it was lots of trees. It was beautifully laid out. Uh, the, the, the road pattern was, was gorgeous. The fine public buildings were there. There were great uh, uh, Victorian buildings. It was a very good-looking city, and it was a destination of uh, you know, tourists when they cruised the Great Lakes. And It was uh, actually known as the Paris of the West uh, at the time. We're talking uh, 1881 to 1888. Henry Ford was still, uh, you know, tinkering in the garage uh, or the barn over in Dearborn. hadn't come and transformed the city yet. Um, it was um, a completely different sort of city, and it was a, a, a smaller American city among the big ones. Um, and they wanted to sort of get a little piece of the action and get a little, get a little bit known. And they wanted to rub shoulders with the big players like Chicago and Boston and. Uh, they were determined to to make their way, and in fact, because of this guy uh, uh, Stearns, um, who I liken to a sort of a, a George Steinbrenner type, he wanted a winner, and he he did what it what was necessary, including kidnapping and paying more than the going rate for players to bring a winner to Detroit, and he succeeded. Well, before we get to Stearns, let's we mentioned Thompson, right, Mayor Thompson, who uh, yeah. was instrumental in. In getting uh, you know this franchise uh, up and running essentially, and and look, I think for for historians, right, the first ever Major League Baseball game played in Detroit uh, yep. was the Wolverines back in 1881 in May of 1881. Yep. Um, you mentioned Recreation Park, um, but he only uh, owned, I guess, uh, quote unquote, the team for the first two seasons, um, and then before was, Stearns came in the it, the latter part of the the ownership of the team, uh, you had this guy Joseph Marsh. So maybe you can give us a sense of sort of. Why, the, why there were three owners in such a short period of time for this team? Well, I, what happened was Thompson, the mayor, who was the first president, and um, he was the fellow that applied for the team and got it and then ran it out of the mayor's office. Well, he by 1883, at the end of 1883, he was no longer mayor. He was getting a little bit tired of, uh, of handling the team, and the team was in the bottom uh, of the National League. It was sixth, fifth or sixth. It, was go it seemed to be going nowhere fast. He didn't seem to have a, a lot of drive, or I'm not sure. He may have played a bit of ball as a younger man, but he didn't have baseball in his blood. Um, they had a, he basically retired, and a guy named Joseph Marsh, who ran a, uh, um, a stationary company, News Depot type thing, um, in, in Detroit, took over for a while as a bit of a caretaker. Uh, on the board was this guy, Fred Stearns, who was the head of this big pharmaceutical company. He was there when Marsh was the head of it. Marsh pulled out, and I think partially because Stearns was saying, okay, enough boys, we've got to start doing things my way. And he became the real driving force uh, and sort of, I think, nudged Marsh aside. And by 1885, he was completely in control um, and was in charge for the last uh, three, four seasons of the team. Uh, and he's the one that uh, helped arrange the kidnapping. He's the one that uh, opened his wallet, personal wallet, in order to um, get the big players. And he wanted to bring a, um, a winner to Detroit because he'd played baseball at the University of Michigan and loved the game and knew quite a bit about it. And he hired this manager, uh, Watkins, from the Indianapolis team that um, seemed uh, like-minded, and the two of them were a pretty effective uh, a pair Watkins himself um, drew a lot of complaints from the players because he was such a strict disciplinarian. 
if he thought a player wasn't playing as hard as he should, he would fine them or suspend them or or criticize them. And uh, the players actually, at one point before the 1888 season began, uh, had a little bit of a revolt and said, "We're not going to play for this guy anymore, even though we just got the National League Championship and the World Series. He's uh, he's 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 impossible to deal with. He's too hard on us." And Fred Stearns and all the directors stood behind Watkins, the manager, and the players realized, oh, well, I guess if we don't play for him, we're going to be out of work. So they sort of swallowed their pride, and they reported for work. So, what, I mean, besides uh, having played uh, in in college and, and sort of, I guess, a desire to win, uh, I mean, was there any other sort of uh, motivations that you can discern that, uh, that Stearns sort of had in, in trying to basically, you know, be so... Uh, cavalier in trying to essentially buy slash kidnap slash win uh, a championship, uh, especially in the early days when, I don't know, I don't know how much uh, financial uh, glory there was necessarily at that time in this enterprise. No, I think I think there was bragging rights, and I, he was um, he took over his company. Uh, Stern's Pharmaceuticals was established by his father. He was born, and his father came from Buffalo, and actually Stern's was born over in Buffalo as well. They came to Detroit. And he got into the, um, back then Detroit was big for salts and chemicals and uh, pharmaceuticals was a big industry. Dow Chemical isn't far out of town. Park Davis and uh, Stearns Pharmaceuticals were the two big drug companies in, in Detroit. And uh, there was a lot of competition amongst the capitalists in, in Detroit. And uh, I believe he was a very competitive man in business. And in fact, I found a, a business guide um, from a, a little later in his career, it talked about his character and said something to the effect that when he puts his mind to something, he'll get it done regardless of the consequences. And that was the sort of driven character he was. And uh, that's, I think, perhaps one of the reasons I sort of make the analogy to George Steinbrenner. He wanted a winner. He wanted to do things his way. He was a very strong character. And um, he was uh, he was responsible for uh, he he was basically the the driving force the spark plug that took them to the next level. Well, you mentioned a few of these sort of little kidnapping uh, uh, incidents and stuff. So um, you know, I, 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 so I have these sort of notes here that sort of uh, tell me that you mentioned Indianapolis, but he also essentially purchased a quote unquote uh, essentially the the entire Buffalo Bisons franchise as well. Yes. Yes, they, they, the same year, 1885, first of all, they bought the Indianapolis franchise, including the manager and all the players, and that's when they had to do the kidnapping in order, because never before had the same team owned two teams, right? And there were strict rules about when players are, are let go by one team and are hired by another, and that was that 10-day period that people could be shopping around looking for some place to go. This is before the reserve clause, of course. And uh, then later that year, that same season, he bought, they bought the entire Buffalo franchise. Buffalo was really struggling. They were drawing, uh, they had a brand new park, and they were having trouble getting more than a couple of hundred fans out to the park. They first of all sold off uh, Pud Galvin, the pitcher, their star pitcher, over to Pittsburgh. And then they basically, basically let it be known that the franchise was up for sale. Not just, don't come in and cherry-pick the players. You come in, you want to buy this team, you buy the entire team, you get it all. So by later in the season of 1885, Buffalo was purchased by Detroit. Fred Stearns became one of the directors of the, the, what was the left of the, of the Buffalo Club and sort of represented it at the National League. 
and they bought the bought the big four players because that's who who they wanted. They didn't want the entire franchise, but they wanted the big four players, and they paid a premium price. Brought them to uh, Detroit, had them suited up for a game in Recreation Park. They were going to play them one September, I think it was September 19th game against uh, New York, I think it was. And uh, they were all suited up, ready to go. And Nick Young, the president of the National League, wired to the umpire and said, if those players, if you, they put them on the field, forfeit the game and tell them so. Uh, the National League, because they were still struggling with this idea of two franchises, uh, not having happened before, they said, no, you cannot acquire all those players and then play them until we give the okay. They didn't get the okay until November after the season was over. In the meantime, Detroit said, okay, discretion is the better part of valor. We'll just let them sit out for the rest of the season. We had planned to use them, but if the National League is going to cause us grief, okay, we'll just let them decide. And they decided that they could keep the team. So the big four, uh, the big four batters, didn't actually play for Detroit until the 1886 season and made an immediate impact. Actually, so much so that they came second to Chicago in the National League that year after being sixth or seventh. All right, so let's talk about those big four, right? Two of them are uh, now enshrined in the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, but do you want to give a little bit of background into why, uh, who and why uh, this big four, why they were so uh, important and or significant, as was uh, proven in 86 and certainly uh, in 1887 when the bigger things happened? Well, they, they, they just had very good bats. I mean, uh, Hardy Richardson, uh, Deacon White, uh, Jack Rowe, um, and... Uh, Dan, Dan Brothers. And Bruthers. And Dan Bruthers. Yep. Yeah. Excuse me. These, these guys, yeah, Bruthers is how it's pronounced. These guys were uh, the class of the league. They were always in the top, um, in the top uh, of the batting averages. They had terrific bats, and um, uh, pitchers would fear them. Uh, they, 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 they played together in, in Buffalo for a while, and then they were bought lock, lock, stock, and barrel to Detroit, and they made a big difference. Now, Deacon White has just recently been put in the Hall of Fame. Um, trying to think. Uh, there's three, three of the four are in the Hall of Fame now. Uh, uh, my notes have uh, Deacon White and uh, Dan Bruthers are uh, in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Roe and Richardson are not. Hot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not as of yet. Yeah. You're, I think you're quite right. It's been a been a while since I wrote this. Sometimes the details get a little foggy, but um, yeah, they were they were terrific. They were sought after. Uh, you know, when they came back from that hunting lodge that they were hidden away at. Um, up on Lake St. Clair, uh, they came back to their to their hotels and they had all these offers from other teams that were waiting for them. And managers were skulking around Detroit from other teams, trying to find the Big Four, going to the hotel, going to the ballpark, trying to find them because they wanted to talk them into playing for them. They were very much in demand. They were um, they were stars. I mean, the Big Four. They were just known as the Big Four back then because they had four big men. I mean. They were significant men in terms of size, not so much uh, Jack Rowe and not so much uh, Deacon White, but uh, Dan Brutus was a huge man, over six feet tall. And these guys could uh, just close the ball. And then there was uh, Sam Thompson, um, who came from Indianapolis, who was also a, a great bat. So they had a, like a murderer's row of batters. Uh, uh, back then, and it was a it was a pretty imp- impressive group. Well, it's also some interesting personalities here too. So, in my uh, in my crack research, I uh, determined or found out that uh, Mr. White, Jim uh, James uh, Laurie Deacon White. Uh, I'm not sure why he was nicknamed Deacon. Maybe you. Oh, did. he was he was nicknamed Deacon because he was church going. He didn't swear. He didn't drink. He was uh, 
he was a, a, a pillar. Uh, another fellow on the team, another pitcher named Lady Baldwin, was called Lady because of the same reason. He had very gentle manners. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't carry on. Uh, back then, they used these names. I mean, there was a guy named Hoy that uh, couldn't speak. They called him Dummy Hoy. I mean, these people just threw around nicknames for everybody at one point. And, and it's funny, too, because the Detroit team was full of people with uh, nicknames. Pretzels, Getzine was a pitcher. Stump Weedman was a pitcher. Uh, uh, you had Lady, you had Deacon, you had all these names. It, it, it's, it's part of the culture of the ball teams way back then. Everybody seemed to have a nickname. All right, let's uh, let our uh, our completists uh, uh, note that uh, Pretzels get signed. That's our first uh, Pretzels uh, get signed uh, uh, reference on here on the show. It only took us about 49, 50 episodes to get to that. Uh, just that name alone is worthwhile pursuing its own show, I think, and and I will absolutely make a note to do that. Uh, but I but also, pretzels, you know how Pretzels got his name? I have no because idea. It, I don't it, know it who was this guy was. Go ahead. Okay, it was said he was one of the top pitchers for Detroit. Pretzels Getzine. He was actually born, I think, in Germany, and Getzine was an anglicization of a German name, and it's I E N, not E I N at the end. G E T Z U C I E N, and. Uh, he, he apparently he, they called him pretzels because he could turn pitchers into pretzels, trying to find, trying to connect with the ball. He all these he had so much so much stuff on the ball. The batters would sort of turn themselves inside out or into pretzels in order to try to connect with the ball. I love this. This is great. Uh, you know, pretzels. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I, okay, I, now we have to make a note to see if we can find some uh, some photos of, of the great pretzels in, in action. But you should you should you could probably do a piece just on great nicknames. I mean, Lady Deacon Pretzels Stump. Oh, there's Fatty. Fatty uh, Bridey was the catcher. I mean, Fatty. Could you imagine today calling a, a play, player by a descriptive name? You know, Baldy or Fatty or Ugly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, the, the one thing I, that stuck out for me, uh, besides uh, uh, White's uh, uh, nickname, um, and see if I have this right, uh, I, according to uh, some historical accounts, White believed that the Earth was flat, and well. and apparently, and apparently, he he was uh, he tried very hard to convince his teammates that uh, that we were living on a flat uh, plane and not not in a globe structure. And apparently, <laughs> apparently they ridiculed him for, for that. But I, you can you got to imagine what the what the what the clubhouse was like during this time when, you know, hey, you know, you got some downtime. You'd be waiting at a rain delay or something or you're you know traveling between teams uh, between the cities. And, hey, you know, what's uh, what's going on, Deacon? Well, you know, uh, I don't know. This is taking a long time. You know why? Because the world is flat. Uh, That's right. Can't imagine. That's right. Can't imagine what these conversations were like. Well, he was very, very religious, uh, hence the name uh, Deacon. It may have been part of his religious belief, uh, uh, sis, uh, you know, system uh, that the, the world was flat. I mean, uh, uh, science be damned. I mean, uh, uh, you know, he, that was that was him. We, we, I mean, there's all sorts of characters in Ball. I mean, there was a, there was a in Allegheny, my previous book. There was a, a monkey, a good luck monkey, apparently that supposedly hung around one of the players. And apparently, at one point, he was considered such good luck, but apparently the, the, the monkey died, and uh, uh, the players got into a little bit of monkey business and actually made sure they buried him near home plate at the home park in order to keep the good luck going. I mean, there's all sorts of great stories about the early days of baseball. Real characters of the players, weird belief systems, um, weird practices. The uh, If I can share a little anecdote with you. Please. The... Uh, the uh, 
in my research, I kept coming across this term for a number of players like Bruthers or Bennett or Baldwin or some of these players. You'd be, you'd be seeing something about the player is, is, is going to be off for a couple of weeks. They have malaria. And I go, malaria? Well, Detroit is on the Detroit River. It's a northern river. It's, uh, it's not swampy. It's not a lot of malaria that I'm aware of. I live two hours away from Detroit myself. And I don't remember any malaria up in this part. And then I thought, well, you know, they did have spring training. One of their first managers, Frank Bancroft, or their very first manager, Frank Bancroft, a pioneered spring training in the south and took them down to New Orleans. And so I think, well, I wonder if maybe they were picking up malaria in New Orleans. And I kept seeing this. These players, they're off, and they were sending them up to Mount Clemens because there were some spa and baths up there, and thinking, well, I don't know how that cures malaria. But at any rate, so I'm really puzzled. I go to Cooperstown for the 18th, the 19th century baseball conference that I presented at last year, actually. And I, I took a couple of the guys aside. Uh, David Nemec, who's a great researcher, has written a number of books. And I said, David, I keep running into this thing while I'm researching Detroit about all these players from Detroit are coming down with malaria. Uh, do you have any idea what that what that's all about? And he says, no, I didn't really run into that very much. So then a little bit later, John Thorne, who is the uh, Major League Baseball historian and who's written extensively, and he's like, uh, oh, man, he's like Moses for baseball. He's awesome. And I said to him, I said, John, I keep running into this thing and these players that are coming down with malaria. I had barely got the word malaria out of my mouth, and he says it's the clap. Baseball players were very popular with the ladies, and they would travel extensively, and they would come down with social diseases, it turns out. And this was one of the things that the managers of the day had to deal with, and their players were indisposed. I still don't know, however, how going to a spa uh, and baths for a couple of weeks would cure you of a sexually transmitted disease, but apparently that's what they were doing. Wow, that's... uh, Okay, so... It, was this unique to uh, baseball players of the time? Was this uh, just simply a microcosm of uh, maildom back in the, in the day, generally amongst the populace? I, I, you know, what, what, what's your sense of? I think it was baseball players because here you are, here you are. You're paid a lot of money, and you're on the road a lot, and you're in all these cities, and you're staying at all these decent hotels, and. The uh, players, for instance, the when when Detroit was coming to town, you know, some of the some of the newspapers in other cities would say, "Oh, Charlie Bennett and the Detroit Wolverines are coming to town, ladies. You'll find that interesting on on Saturday or whatever." Right? The players were big, tall, handsome. Many of them were tall, handsome, and strapping guys. And you know, they'd look for something to do. They many of them were drinkers and uh, party animals. And uh, the young ladies would come to the ballpark, and uh, you know, one thing would lead to another. In London here, for instance, we had uh, Fred Goldsmith, the pitcher, and his, his catcher was Phil Powers. Both good-looking American guys came up here to play ball and were play, paid a lot of money. Both of them married London girls uh, while they were here. Um, so, you know, sometimes it would lead to romance and spouses, and sometimes it would lead to something like malaria. Quote-unquote. Uh, <laughs> very, that's very interesting. So... Um... Well, so uh, let's uh, maybe start getting into um, into uh, the 1887 season because this was uh, obviously a very uh, a pivotal and uh, and remarkable season for the uh, Wolverines franchise. Uh, in that, uh, all of that uh, that talent, uh, whether uh, purchased or hijacked or kidnapped or otherwise uh, 
somehow, uh, uh, you know, uh, found uh, led to, I guess, the ultimate in uh, in in success being both the National League pennant, which at the time really was the only professional league, but also this quote unquote World Series title in 1887. Maybe you can. Well, well, actually, actually, the National League was challenged from uh, the American Association existed from 1882 to 1892. So in 1886, 1887, there were two leagues, um, and uh, I think it was 84, they had the first of the World Series. But getting back to the 1887 season, Detroit had such a powerful lineup, and everyone thought that they were going with the Big Four and Sam Thompson and Charlie Bennett and uh, some of the pitching staff they had. Early on, the thinking was, this is going to be the class of the league. And sure enough, in May, they got in first place, and they never relinquished first place for the rest of the season. They absolutely hammered everyone else. And like the previous years, it was agreed to make additional money at the end of the season. The uh, American Association champion would play the National League champion. And Chris Vonderhaa, who was the uh, head of the St. Louis uh, Browns, who had been in the World Series the previous year and also won the American Association in 1887, he and Fred Stearns from Detroit got together and said, okay, let's uh, play a series. We'll call it the World Series, and um, we want to we milk it for everything it's worth. What they came up with was this plan to play 15 games and play them in a variety of cities. Only a couple of games would be played in each of uh, St. Louis and uh, uh, Detroit, and they would take the thing on the road, and they'd go Boston, New York, and all over the place in order to make money. And to make sure they made lots of money, they said it's going to be a 15-game series, and we're going to play all 15 games. Well, that meant that the series went rather late, and by the, I think it was by the 10th game or 11th game, Detroit had it wrapped up. But they had to keep playing later and later in the season. And very late in the season, I believe, if I recall correctly, the last game, I can't remember if it was in St. Louis or somewhere, but they had 600 shivering fans uh, to watch the final game, which probably barely paid for their expenses once you figured the travel and the salaries and that sort of thing. But a 15-game World Series, uh, it's the early primitive version of the World Series. It started, I think, in 84, and it went to about 1887 or 8, um, somewhere in there. And uh, it was the predecessor of the World Series between the National League and the American League that began in 1903. Yeah, and I guess that's what was my comment earlier, is, is I, I, not to denigrate the, uh, the American Association at the time. And again, I'm not a professional historian, so please note that asterisk. But, um, no but, but the idea that... Um, this idea of the World Series was is still, I think, when when looked upon backwards uh, in historical uh, framework, uh, it was not sort of was now known as the modern day World Series, right? So it seems to me like, sure. so, would it be fair or charitable uh, to call it an exhibition series, or was it kind of truly a quote unquote championship, or or is it somewhere in between? Oh no, oh no, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of bragging rights attached to it, and there was a trophy uh, attached to it, and there's a pennant attached to it. Uh, no, they took it seriously. I mean, it was a it was a clear cut, you know, money raising thing. Of course, I suppose you could argue that once the major, the the new, the more modern World Series started, it's a money making thing too. But they called it also instead of just the World Series back in the 1880s, they also called it the World Championship as well. So it wasn't known known as World Series capital W capital S, the World Series that we know of today. 
Um, and obviously when you're running it to 15 games and there's only 600 people at the tail end. No, these were serious games, and uh, they earned money for it, and they were trying to get as many fans out as possible, and there were significant bragging rights attached to uh, who prevailed at the end of the day. Well, all right, having reached then the pinnacle of what was ever, what, what was called a world championship team, and certainly winning their uh, their league as well, the National League, uh, you'd think that the, the team would have been, at least uh, again, on my basic cursory research, would have been primed for ongoing success. But of course, that was not to be the case, right? Because the following season was their last one. Maybe you can give us some, some okay. sort of, uh, understanding of why that was the case. And maybe I'm sure economics and other things had, to, had a role to play. And the other teams in the league not being happy with the way Detroit was running their shop. Yeah, yeah, that's all part of the mix. It's a little complicated. I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, the, the 1888 season, here they are, the reigning champions, and one would think things are on the roll and things are great. They didn't draw very many fans uh, to, the, to the ballpark in Detroit. They were still a draw on the road, but Detroit, for some reason, the Detroit fans just really weren't there uh, in, in significant numbers, and they never really had been. And I, I put that down to the fact that they were in the wrong league. Had they been in the American Association, they could have had Sunday games, and they could have had alcohol in the ballpark. I mean, Detroit was in, uh, an early city to, uh, was an early city to industrialize, and so a lot of people would, the only time they'd have away from the work floor and, uh, you know, you, would be on, on Sunday. So the crowds were, I think it was a bad fit. They were in the wrong league, for starters. Secondly, the punitive um, gate-sharing uh, arrangements that uh, the other owners had put on Detroit also hurt their bottom line because they were drawing, getting most of their money from the road trips. They were big draws. They were getting significant crowds, 20,000 or something like that in some of the big cities. And Pitts, uh, Chicago was always a big draw. Even when Chicago came to Detroit, it was their best crowd. So there was a, a real good rivalry between Detroit and Chicago. And it was Chicago, Spalding over in Chicago, that decided that I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to penalize them with the $150 gate. I'm going to let them continue to get 30% when they come and visit us. So it was Spalding that helped Detroit get through and was a big friend at the end. I think he may have been worried that they might jump to the American Association. And at one point, when they were being threatened by the other owners, the Detroit had threatened themselves to jump to the other league. Um, at any rate, the fans weren't there. The money wasn't there. Uh, there was a lot of dissension on the team. The team really was really fighting with the manager. The manager was fighting with the team. He gave Pretzel get sign. He fined him $100, which was a lot of money back then, for back talk, uh, you know, talking back to the manager. Uh, when he didn't think somebody legged it out hard enough to get to the next base, he'd fine them $100. He was becoming quite disliked by the players, and the, the, the injuries, there were a number of injuries. The team was not doing very well. Partway through the season, the manager says, okay, I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore. And at the end of the season, um, they were, I think they finished fourth or something. I don't have it in right handy, but they didn't do that all that well for the reigning champions. At the end of the season, the directors, Fred Stearns and his buddies, Fred had to take over his father's business right around then and was going to become very, very, very busy with the pharmaceutical business. So he decided, well, I'm going to have to pull out, and I guess the directors all got together, quite disappointed that they didn't get greater support in Detroit uh, from the fans. Um, and uh, the directors got together and said, uh, let's sell. They sold the franchise to Cleveland, and the players scattered to the winds, and 
Detroit was without a, a professional team for several years. It wasn't until 1894 that a, a guy named George Vanderbeck came came uh, along and put a team in the Western League, and he called it the Creams. Uh, they were going to be the cream of the league. Um, he called them the Creams, and the, not long afterwards, they changed the name to the Tigers. And not long after that, the Western League became the American League, and eventually uh, Detroit was a founding member of the American League and has been in the American League ever since. Right. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people associate Detroit as an American League team, um, American League city, uh, and uh, it wasn't always that way. Why, why do you think it took uh, that long of a period of time between the demise of the Wolverines uh, and the arrival of the Tigers? Was it indeed the, uh, the growth and the then uh, sort of booming industrialization, courtesy of the auto industry, the budding auto industry, that made Detroit a more, shall we say, viable city because of its, its rapid growth at that point later? Well, well, well by 1893-94, Detroit really still wasn't, really wasn't buzzing as an auto city. It was, it was just the early days of it. Things were just starting to get going. Um, it wasn't really humming until as, a, as an auto city until after the turn of the century. And, uh, you know, even by 1905 or 1910, um, I, I, I think there was a reluctance, given what had happened with the Wolverines and seeing that they, they couldn't draw that well, I think there was a reluctance to um, go back into the National League. There was an attempt. Uh, both, Boston, both Buffalo and Detroit tried to get back into the league in about, 18, in about uh, 1891 or somewhere in there, um, and the major, the National League owners said, nope, uh, they weren't the, they weren't a stayer, as they said. They, they, they weren't there for the long haul, so we don't want them back, either of them. Um, um, I think that after a number of years, though, without a professional team, Detroit said, well, let's give it a shot. Let's, let's have a go again. And that's where the Western League and the, the, the beginnings of the Tigers uh, came from. So in your research, is there any sort of, uh, uh, sort of un, sort of, uh, misunderstood or, or not appreciated uh, uh, legacy that uh, that the Wolverines sort of uh, brought to bear during their their brief existence in the in the late uh, 1800s or or were they just more symptomatic or or uh, emblematic I guess of a, of a wild and woolly uh, maturation process of uh, of the of the move towards the professionalism of baseball generally yeah they were they were a team in playing professional baseball league professional league baseball at a time that the, the, the National League was still trying to get it right about how to run teams, how to make money. The, 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 the rules were changing. I mean, uh, the Detroit, uh, I mean, until 1884, you had to throw underhand. Uh, you couldn't throw overhand. Um, and it wasn't until uh, 1894 that the 60-foot, 6-inch pitching distance was, was brought in. So it was a, the game itself was being modified on an almost annual basis. Uh, at one point, uh, you had to have, what, seven or eight uh, balls to have a walk and four strikes for an out. Uh, uh, even early on, and just before Detroit started playing, uh, you used to be able to catch it on the first bounce and still call it an out. So the game was evolving uh, as a game. Uh, the business model was certainly evolving. Um, Detroit was, uh, from 1881 to 1888, when they existed, the, the Wolverines, um, they straddled uh, a couple of interesting eras in baseball when it was going from a sort of a primitive game to a more business-like venture, and the rules were being refined. Um, uh, stolen bases weren't counted until 1885, for instance. Uh, there were all sorts of little um, little tweaks that were going on in the game. So uh, it's it's if if you're 
want to know about an interesting time in baseball history, I think the story of the Detroit Wolverines sort of captures it. That's very interesting. And um, uh, I also think, too, um, uh, we talked about pretzels get signed again. I'm going to go back to him because uh, it almost feels to me that, uh, you know, you could, besides going into nicknames and stuff of, of just not only the, the players of the Wolverines, but of, of other league players at that time, uh, uh, it seems to me that Getzheim was also kind of, I don't know if he was the inventor of the curveball, but he certainly was, uh, you know, recognized as almost a, an innovator uh, and maybe even a, a popularizer of, of the curveball pitch, uh, way back when. Well, he was a little, he was a little later. My, Fred Goldsmith, who pitched here in 1874 to 1878, uh, he claimed to have invented the curveball, and he, he threw it with, with great effectiveness. He was one of the reasons the team here was so successful. But there's a guy named Candy Cummings who pitched even earlier, and he was the, um, he was, uh, didn't pitch as long. Uh, he claimed to have invented it and learned it down at uh, Harvard or Yale or wherever it was. And, in fact, he is in the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, partly on the basis of uh, his claim that he invented the curveball. He was also um, he was also one of the, the founders of the International Association in 1877. So they predate both Goldsmith and um, and and Cummings predate uh, Pretzels. By there were a number of uh, pitchers throwing curves by the time that Pretzel was. He just was able to just something mystifying about his delivery. For instance, Pud Galvin, same thing. He had a, a wicked fastball, uh, not much of a curve because he, he had a very small hand, but he just was effective in mixing stuff up and confusing the batters. So Pretzels was just a, a wily practitioner who was quite effective, but uh, he had a, a number of pitches that he threw. But uh, no, the curve, uh, the curve, the early curve ballers predated him by a little bit. Interesting. Very interesting. All right, so how about some promotional opportunity here? Uh, tell us where <laughs> we can find the book, and uh, I'm also curious to see if you've got any other uh, ideas in mind for uh, for future work uh, books. Oh, I'm, I'm working on a beauty right now. I just put down my paperwork from the one I'm just starting, but let's talk about the Detroit Wolverines, the rise and wreck of a National League team, 1881 to 1888 is the title of the book. If you just Google Detroit Wolverines, um, you could find it. But just Google it, and it's widely available all over Amazon, everything. It's ebook as well. Uh, the publisher is McFarland, but just Google it, and you can find it. It's everywhere out there. I think we're selling a few copies. I made a presentation at the Sabre Group in Detroit last week, and they gobbled up every copy I had. Um, and it's, I think it's doing, it's doing fairly well. It's one of my favorite books. I've written uh, eight altogether. And um, it's, a, it's just a great story of interesting characters, interesting time in Detroit. And uh, I've learned a lot about the, uh, I've learned a lot about Detroit. And I just took a friend down there to show him the plaque where Recreation Park used to be. It's uh, at the Detroit Medical Center, and all that's left is just a plaque saying this is where right field uh, or left field used to be uh, in Recreation Park days. And uh, uh, it's 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 just a, it's just a wonderful story as far as I'm concerned. As far as projects I'm working on, well. This might, you might find this of interest, and maybe we can talk about this at a future time. I'm writing about the Canadian who taught Babe Ruth how to play baseball. Again with the Canadians with the baseball history. Look at you. Well, I'm up here. I gotta, you know, you guys got to know that it's not just Americans that play the game. It's your national pastime, but we've been playing it an awful long time, too. Uh, brother Matthias was the big uh, Zavarian brother at St. Mary's Industrial Training School in Baltimore, where Babe Ruth was sent as an incorrigible seven-year-old boy. And Babe Ruth took, uh, took uh, excuse me, Brother Matthias took uh, Babe Ruth under his arm and taught him how to play, how to catch, how to pitch. 
Uh, he was the greatest man I ever met. He taught me how to play baseball. Babe Ruth said in later life he gave him not one but two Cadillacs as thank yous. Brother Matthias, his real name was Martin Leo Boutillier, and he was born in Cape Breton Island in 1872. And he moved later to Boston and ultimately to Baltimore. So, uh, you know, uh, Canadians get a kick out of little things like we can we can tell you guys about. Yet again, we uh, we as uh, uh, American citizens uh, owe a debt of gratitude to our neighbors to the north, and uh, perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps more interestingly, as uh, as maybe the seeds of the foundation of our actual national pastime. Can you imagine, uh, Chip? This has been awesome. I appreciate this. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a, roll, a stroll down nostalgia lane because uh, this is obviously predates both of us. I would, uh, and uh, oh, yeah. but it's it's history, right? And uh, the history of uh, of pro sports is what we're, uh, especially those of teams and leagues that don't exist anymore. That's why we're. We're here for whatever reason, but uh, that, that, that it doesn't mean that doesn't have to been you know in our collective memories. But uh, you know, without you know, without teams like the Wolverines and the various characters, and look, we even talked about some things like the reserve clause, and you know, these things actually are, are you know a lot of a lot of these kids today. Right, they think everything is new, but uh, the reality is that some of these issues and some of these developments and and processes and and people uh, obviously pre uh, were much earlier in, in history, and and that's why we try to unearth some of these stories. And I appreciate your helping us through the Wolverines one. Uh, history is a lot of fun. Baseball history is a heck of a lot of fun. And just learning about a time when uh, p- things were different and the game was different and people were different and cities were different, uh, I get a real kick out of that. It, it turns my crank and uh, uh, it sounds like it does the same with you, Tim. All right, interesting stuff from uh, from Chip. Thanks, Chip, for being part of our little uh Showgram here, and um, you know everything old is new again, or everything new is uh, frankly not new. It's uh, a lot of these things are are rooted in in the past. That's kind of why we explore some of these things. I mean, the uh, the origins of the reserve clause and the the challenges to that, and the players uh, sort of uniting uh, to fight back on that stuff. So the Wolverines were a part of that that, that mix. Uh, this this uh, this guy Fred Stearns, right? The uh, the last owner of the Wolverines, right? He uh, he basically was. Uh, the George Steinbrenner of his time. You know, interesting to know that uh, uh, the uh, roguishness of uh, the adult male, especially in the sporting world, uh, was not necessarily new or a modern uh, uh, scenario. It uh, certainly was quite the thing back in the late 1800s, uh, especially as uh, a number of them came down with, quote unquote, malaria once in a while. I mean, what else? Uh, you know, some of these nicknames, my gosh, uh, you know, I, I agree with Chip. I, we might want to actually do a, an episode specifically focused on the, the wackiest nicknames, uh, perhaps of certain eras. And, and um, again, uh, if there isn't one now, perhaps we'll start one and uh, a fan club uh, for the great Pretzels Get Sign, who um, uh, we might make some fun because of the name, but uh, he was uh, quite a prolific pitcher. He of uh, the curveball. Uh, extraordinaire, and and, I, and depending on who you talk to, and the legends attached to, uh, was apparently a guy who could actually make the the ball curve twice. Uh, hence, sort of the uh, the pretzel sort of uh, uh, reference to to his nickname. Uh, but the Detroit Wolverines, very interesting story. And again, uh, the book is called "The Detroit Wolverines: uh, The Rise and Wreck of a National League Champion." Uh, it is published by uh, our friends at McFarland. Uh, you can get it, as they say, wherever good books are found. And, of course, 
Uh, you can find a link to it and a great way to support the show by clicking and buying through that link uh, in our episode 50 on our website, and that's at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, that is also where you're going to find all the latest information about this little show, uh, all the past episodes, all the past uh, media and books and videos and all kinds of things that we mentioned and, and feature during uh, during our little escapades here. Uh, it's also where you'll be able to find where our social media links are and uh, all the various feeds and where our players are. You can listen to and download and RSS and whatever you want to do to find our show. Uh, and again, on social media, please do follow us early and often. We love it when you do that. And uh, and uh, we'd love to connect with you in those environments. Of course, at Twitter, that's good. Excuse me, at Good Seats Still. Again, at Good Seats Still on Twitter. Uh, you'll find us, of course, on uh, Instagram. Uh, and that's Good Seats Still Available. And uh, you'll find a Facebook page devoted to us as well. You can uh, comment uh, to us there. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, make sure you go to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find a link to uh, our email address there. And again, uh, can't underline this enough. Please, 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 by all means, when you get a chance, rate, review us wherever you can, especially in Apple iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called these days. Um, we uh, get heat uh, and the algorithms get uh, all uh, all nice and warm for us when you uh, put some good uh, some good karma, some good comments uh, into those places too. So, uh, and again, we we love uh, how you discover our show. Please let us know how you uh, how you find the show, how you listen to the show, what you like, what you don't like, and of course, uh, if you do like, please tell some friends, and uh, we'd love to get more and more listeners as we uh, as we continue to get uh, larger and more robust as we near almost now, believe it or not, a whole year's worth of of episodes on this little show. Um, we can't do that and uh, without you. We uh, thank you. You know who you are. Uh, and um, please, indeed, keep listening and lots more fun stuff. Appreciate all your suggestions. Uh, we will get to all of them and uh, some more fun stuff ahead uh, as the weeks and months uh, play out. So thanks again for listening. And uh, until next week, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.